Good morning. Very nice to be with you all. Well, I know Melissa just prayed. I'm going to pray again because I need to pray and I'd love for you guys to pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you again for the high, unfathomable privilege of being called your children through the blood of Christ and that you would save us and you would keep us and you would bring us into your kingdom and into your body and make us members of one another together. Lord, it's just unfathomable that um, you would even allow us to be used by you in one another's lives to put you on display. And Lord, in your unsearchable wisdom, that is your design. And we plead with you that you would do what only you can do in each of us individually and in our relationships with one another and in the life of Grace Bible Church, that our church would be strengthened so that we would just more clearly display your glory through your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, good morning. I would like you to go ahead and take out your notebook, turn it over. We're going to start by looking at the back of the notebook. And also pull out your worksheet because there's some note space to take notes about the disciplines there on your worksheet. So we're going to start, hopefully this is how we start every time, is by reviewing our Wellspring Purpose and Disciplines. And right there on your notebook, you have the Wellspring Purpose in front of you. But today, we're going to do it a little bit differently to help us not tune it out, just because it starts to get familiar. And so what we're going to do is we're going to paraphrase the purpose by starting at the end. So the purpose of Wellspring is to strengthen the church in its gospel purpose. That is what we're ultimately aiming at. And we do that through each of us being increasingly transformed by the gospel because we're shepherding our hearts toward Jesus through God's word. And we're being equipped and encouraged to do that through the teaching, the homework, the discussions, the relationships we have here in Wellspring. The Wellspring purpose really points to the fact that believers are saved into a body. We're a family with each other. That's what the church is. Romans 12.15 says that we... No, it's not Romans 12.15. I think it's Romans 12.5. Sorry. You probably have the wrong reference in your notes there. It says that we belong to one another. And Ephesians 4.16 tells us that the body causes the growth of the body. And it, it that causes the growth of the body through the kinds of interactions we have with one another here in Wellspring. And we pursue this Wellspring purpose with three disciplines. Discipline one is the heart. You have this on your notebook there. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Now, 1 Peter 2, which you have there in your notes, it describes discipline one in this way. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, so there's a repenting of sin, Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So discipline one involves this active putting off of sin as well as longing for God's word. It's an active pursuit that is commanded of those who have tasted the kindness of the Lord in bringing them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It shows us God's design for an inseparable relationship between our hearts and our holiness and his word. Discipline two, then, is the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Now, looking back at that verse on 1 Peter, from 1 Peter 2, <laughs> notice the things we're to be putting aside. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy. That word hypocrisy comes from the idea of a mask worn by an actor concealing the true identity. It is behavior that contradicts what one claims to believe. You have that definition there in your notes. So this putting off of hypocrisy is crucial, particularly in our homes. We must live out an authentic testimony of what God has done in our lives through the gospel. And there must not be anything 
about how we are in our homes, it would cast doubt on that. It would be hypocritical if the people who see us in our homes, or even a fly on the wall, knew us to be someone completely different at home than what we are at church. How we live in our homes shows what our affections for Christ truly are. That's going to mean that we're quick to seek forgiveness from our husband, our parents, brothers and sisters, roommates, and that we're quick to forgive as well. And it means that we're shepherding our hearts to serve and shepherd in our home with the same joy and eagerness as we do anywhere else. And living like this as an authentic aroma of Christ in our homes is fueled by faithfully shepherding of our hearts to meet with God in his word. It's back to discipline one. Discipline three then is ministry. With a heart fixed on God, that's discipline one, and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, that's discipline two, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And so you can see one discipline flows into another. It's like our picture on the front of our notebooks. Discipline one fuels us to be the aroma of Christ in our homes. And discipline two allows us to minister outside of our homes with integrity. And yet, as we saw in the last lesson, this influence flows both directions. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's say I haven't been doing very well with meeting with God and his word. And maybe I haven't even been very loving to the people in my home. Maybe I haven't been purposeful about being a gospel influence in my home. Does that mean I should just skip church and small group and stay home and try to shore up discipline one and discipline two? No, that is not what that means at all. Because one of God's tools for strengthening discipline one and discipline two is the body of Christ. It's back to what we saw in the Wellspring Purpose, drawing near to God together with God's people as we worship and we serve and we learn and we share our lives with one another, that fuels our love for Christ and our hatred of sin. It spurs us on in our pursuit of God through his word, and it renews our commitment to be faithful gospel influences in our homes. So we need to pursue the wellspring purpose through all of these disciplines. All of them are important. We're aiming at strengthening all of them all of the time. They need to work together in our lives and in the life of our church. And there is a priority. We don't want to leapfrog over one to get to another. But at the same time, we need to let each discipline strengthen the others. Okay, well, let's um, get ready for our lesson. Before we actually jump in, I just want to give you a few comments about your worksheet, if you want to pull that out. Um, Now, each time this lesson is taught, As I pray and talk with other women, there are some sections that invariably get revised. Um, And so this time, that meant I added uh, quite a bit of content in the notes to one section in particular, the keepers at home, the workers at home. And I just want to make sure you understand that um, from year to year, the amount of time spent on each quality is going to vary. And hopefully over the years, they all get fair coverage. But I also just want to point out that all of these qualities are important and they're necessary and we really aren't doing justice to any of them in just one lesson. So really this lesson should remind all of us to make these verses a regular part of our lives. Um, Read through them and pray about them and talk about them with one another and examine your own heart in light of them because they really are foundational. But all of these qualities really do need equal weight in our lives, even though the notes, you're going to have a little bit for some, and you're going to have a couple pages for others. That's why that is the way it is. Um, All right, so go ahead and get out your Bible. Turn to Titus 2. Okay, so today's lesson is on Titus 2, 3 through 5. And there are several different layers, if you will, from what we're going to see here. So there's instructions for godly living, and there are instructions for our relationships with each other, especially older women and younger women. And then there's the big picture of how this fits into the life of the church. 
So we'll start with a little background about the book of Titus so we understand how these verses fit into Paul's um, larger message in this letter. So in this letter, Paul is addressing a problem. The churches in Crete are out of order. That's why Paul left Titus there. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul wrote, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. The churches need to be put in order, and they needed elders to help bring that to help bring that order. And then beginning in Titus 1, verse 10, Paul described a problem in the churches on Crete that the elders must address. There were rebellious men who professed to know God, but by their deeds, they denied him. We see that down at the very end of chapter 1. These men were exerting an influence. Chapter 1, verse 11 tells us that they were upsetting whole families. Households were being thrown into confusion because these men were teaching things they should not teach. There's unsound teaching, and it's resulting in upheaval. So in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul wrote, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So unsound teaching must be met with sound teaching, with sound doctrine. And the church must be instructed how to live in light of that sound doctrine. And that is what follows in chapter 2. The, churches, the church must be instructed how to live in light of that sound doctrine. Every group of people in the church, because when there are people in the church who profess to know God, but they deny him by their deeds, it's all the more essential that those who truly know God show that they know him by their deeds. And in verses 3 through 5, we find his specific instructions for women, instructions in godliness, and instructions for how we're to help one another grow in godliness. So let's read beginning in Titus 2, verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So here in these instructions for setting the church in order, we see that it's necessary for God's word to be honored. And in order for God's word to be honored, our lives and our relationships need to show that we have been changed by the gospel. That's weighty. God has entrusted a significant responsibility to us as women in the church. Now, thankfully, Paul didn't stop here. Beginning in verse 11, he explains the gospel foundation underneath these instructions. So read with me beginning in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. But not only bringing salvation, also, verse 12, instructing us. To deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That is what Christ has done for us in the gospel. By his grace, he has redeemed us and purified us for himself as a people zealous for good deeds. And what are those good deeds for which we are to be zealous? Well, it's what we find in verses 3 through 5. Remember, salvation is by faith alone. Our works never will add to what Christ has done, but rather they display what Christ has done in our lives. Smed talked about that on Sunday. And so this godly character in verses 3 through 5 is exactly what Christ redeemed us for, to be zealous for these good deeds so that we would clearly be seen to be his people. The character and the relationships in these verses are God's design for us to display the transforming power of the gospel in our lives so that our households are protected. Remember, they were under attack in Crete. 
and so that our church is strengthened and so that we would give the world no reason to discredit the word of God and its crown jewel, the gospel. So let's go ahead and turn to page two of our worksheet. We can summarize our passage like this. The word of God is honored through gospel-transformed older women training gospel-transformed young women. So number one on the outline, what older women transformed by the gospel must be. So what is an older woman? Well, the text doesn't indicate a specific age. It's probably referring to women who are at least 50 or 60, women whose children are grown. And now that I'm in the older woman season of life myself, I get asked, so what do you do? Um, some of you probably have that same question. It's fair enough. But this passage is exactly where we need to look for the answer to that question, not to the culture, not to the world. So what should I do? What should you do? What does God's word tell us to do? Well, God's word tells us that older women have the responsibility and the opportunity to train young women in the church, to be examples, to come alongside, to encourage, to teach, to serve. And everything else needs to be considered in light of this job description we have from the Lord. And so this is what we all need to be aiming for. If you're a young woman, this is your time of preparation for this older woman ministry. And older is a relative term. In one respect, all we need to be all we need to do to be older is to find someone who is younger. And all of us are older than somebody. All of us can encourage those who are younger, maybe younger in age or maybe younger in the faith. We can all encourage somebody to grow in godliness, to grow as a Titus II woman. And all of us benefit from being teachable young women as well, no matter our age, as we learn from other women and let them spur us on in our walk with the Lord. And we can build these relationships in many different ways in the church. It could be women with whom we serve. It could be women in our small group, as well as here at Wellspring. We also have a mentoring ministry for women. There are times when we might benefit from a more formalized relationship with an older or younger woman. So if you're interested in that, be sure to talk to Chris Evans. Probably most of you know her, but wave at us, Chris. You can find her, and her contact information is also at the end of the worksheet if you'd like to talk to her more about mentoring. <clears throat> All right, so given the important responsibility of an older woman, let's look at the kind of woman she must be. Now, the character of the gospel-transformed older woman is described here in four ways. She's reverent in her behavior, she's not a malicious gossip, she's not enslaved to much wine, and she teaches what is good. Her life is to set an example that others can follow. These qualities make her the kind of woman who is ready to encourage and train younger women. So what is reverence? Well, the word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple. It's like a priest in a sacred place. Paul is saying that the older woman, uh, the older women are to do everything with a view towards worshiping God. We are to see all of our lives as set apart for God. And we need to be careful not to be deceived by the false spirituality that's so common, even in many Christian circles. Being reverent does not mean being mystical. It doesn't mean living by impressions or clinging to only certain favorite aspects of God's character rather than the whole counsel of God's word. Rather, reverence understands that there's only one place where we go to hear from God, and that is his word. Again, that's why discipline one is so important. And reverence for God and his word overflows in our behavior as we respond to his word with worshipful obedience in every part of our lives. Not just in our quiet time and not just when we're at church, but at all times, in all places, with all people. Number two, then, is not malicious gossips. The Greek word for malicious gossips is translated as slanderers in the ESV, 
and it's used 34 times in the New Testament for the devil, the one who accuses and slanders us before God, and who also slanders God to us. Remember what he said to Eve in the garden? So this is serious. Slander is literally diabolical. Of the three instances in which it refers to speech rather than specifically to the devil, two of them are specifically directed at women. So this is something we need to be concerned about, alarmed about even. We need to have a healthy distrust of our own self-assessment when it comes to malicious gossip. We need to recognize it, even when it masquerades under some other name like venting, processing, sharing, posting. So how can we know if something is appropriate to say or to repeat? Well, you have Ephesians 4.29 there in your notes, and it's really helpful. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. So before we speak, we need to ask ourselves, are these wholesome words? Are they going to build others up? Is this the right time to speak? Will these words give grace to those who hear them? And it's fair to add, as we consider slander, do our words give grace to those about whom we are speaking? At a heart level, when we're tempted to slander and gossip, it's because we're not thinking and responding biblically. We'd rather talk than pray. We'd rather accuse or replay in our minds over and over again rather than forgive. You know, there is a time to talk about problems. We need to talk about problems with the right people, for the right purpose, with the right motive. To call others to repentance, to pursue reconciliation. That kind of talk is not gossip. That's not slander. That's wholesome. That's edifying. But the warning here is for women not to be slanderers, not to be accusers, not to speak it, post it, like it, repeat it, listen to it, read it, excuse it, or even think it. Believers have been set free from that, and now we're being made more and more like our Savior, who is our advocate, not our accuser. So we must imitate him by advocating for others in prayer rather than finding sinful satisfaction in gossip and slander. Number three on the outline, then, is not enslaved to much wine. And you can see there on your notes that this means to not be mastered by alcohol. Nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine, but in multiple places he condemns drunkenness. Older women are exhorted not to be enslaved to much wine. The emphasis is on the word enslaved. It's a term of bondage. It could be wine. Obviously, that was a problem with the women in the churches at Crete because that's what Paul addressed here. And still today, many see alcohol as an escape. But the reality is that it only enslaves those who hope to escape through it. It could be food. I'm sorry, alcohol is not the only thing that enslaves when one seeks to escape or find comfort through it. It could be food, it could be our phone, it could be the television, it could be a lot of different things. Shopping. We are in danger of enslavement if we turn to these things for escape or comfort. Now these things can be enjoyed with self-control and thankfulness as good gifts from the Lord. But God himself must be our comfort and our refuge. You have Psalm 34, 8 in your notes. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So regarding alcohol in particular, I want to urge us all to be careful. If it's flowing often, if it's your reward after a hard day, be careful. We're communicating something when we do that, and it's not a message that puts Christ on display as our greatest treasure and the one to whom we run for comfort. So the reverent woman is a woman who is shepherding her heart away from malicious gossip, away from uh, enslavement to alcohol or to anything, to find her joy, 
and her comfort and her peace in her Savior, Jesus. That is the fruit of the gospel in an older woman's life. That's how we honor grace's instructions for us. Finally, number four, Paul says that older women are to teach what is good. This includes both formal and informal instruction of the things that are beneficial. And that must be rooted in God's word. The word gives us God's wisdom. So once again, we see how foundational discipline one is for the ministry God has for us. We need to be women who bring others to the word of God, who help one another understand God's character and his promises and the gospel and its implications, and then to live obediently in response, to apply God's wisdom in practical ways. And we do this both through our example, being examples of all that's coming in verses 4 through 5, as well as through our words. It's interesting that in Titus chapter 2, it wasn't Titus who was told to do this. The church needs older women to teach younger women in this way. That brings us to page 3, Roman numeral 2 on your outline, what transformed older women must train the young women to be. Excuse me. All right, verse 4 begins, so that they, the older women, may encourage the young women. Now, encourage here means to train, to advise, to urge. It's an ongoing influence because growth takes time. We need to be patient and persevere. And young women, this is saying that you need older women to teach and encourage you to advise you, sometimes to urge you. And that takes a lot of humility and grace. We have to be teachable. So this is a huge opportunity for us to live together in light of the gospel. So let's read Titus 2, 4, and 5 again and see again what it is that the older women are to teach the young women. So older women are to be what we saw in verse 3, so that they may encourage or train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Older women are to train and urge the young women to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. And this is addressing all women, whether or not we're married, whether or not we have children. I believe this list begins by addressing those relationships because they're very common, and it's important that we understand God's design in them. But in the book of Titus, Paul is concerned with setting the whole church in order. And it's very clear in God's providence that he builds the church from people of all seasons of life. So understand that there are no spectators in this passage. We all have an important role in protecting God's word from dishonor and strengthening the church. Okay, so let's look at this first quality, to love her husband. In the Greek, this is literally a husband lover. It describes who a woman is. It's not just what she does. To be a husband lover means a wife is to model her love for her husband after God's love for his people through Jesus Christ. And an unmarried woman can be a husband lover by esteeming and encouraging biblical marriage. A wife is to pursue being devoted to her husband, cherishing him. This is a self-giving love that we choose to give. And this is all the more astounding when we remember that most Cretan marriages were arranged. In that setting, a woman who truly and deeply loved her husband would stand out as a representative of the gospel. And with all of the confusion in our culture about marriage, we also have an opportunity to stand out as gospel representatives by placing a high value on what God's word says about marriage. Now, though today marriage is based on personal choice and love, 
This is still a kind of learn love which must be learned. Sadly, it's all too easy for sin to creep into our attitudes towards our husband. Criticism, indifference, unforgiveness, bitterness, judgment, ingratitude, discontentment. And so we have to actively cultivate self-giving love and to encourage one another to model, model our love after God's love for us in Christ Jesus in the same way that we do not have to earn God's affection. Do not make your husband or anyone else in your home earn your love and devotion. Don't withhold your love or your friendship or your affection. Love unconditionally, even when others are stubborn and disobedient, because that is exactly what you cherish about God's love for you. Let them cherish that kind of love from you. Lavish God's grace on them as God has lavished his grace on you. It's no mistake that the marriage relationship is listed first here. After our relationship with Jesus, our husband is to be first in our heart, in our mind, in our priorities, before children, ministry, activities, work. Does your husband have first place when it comes to your time? Do you find yourself telling him what you're going to do, or do you ask him and talk to him about it? Are you loving your husband well with how you use your time after the kids are in bed, or with the time that you go to bed? We need to learn what our husband prefers and then put his preference above our own. It's easy to get so busy that things get turned around and other things take priority. And at times we can find ourselves more concerned with getting things done, wishing our husband would serve us, rather than prioritizing and finding joy in serving and loving him. And so we need to model and encourage women to give our best to our husband, to be thoughtful of him, to be respectful of him. You have Ephesians 5.33 in your notes there. And that verse ends with saying that the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And the verse does not say if he deserves it. That's how the world thinks. But the gospel is put on display when we respect our husband out of love for God. It honors God when we truly and genuinely from the heart, because of God's love for us, pour ourselves out in self-giving love for our husband, putting his needs and his preferences above our own and treasuring him, not comparing him with anyone else. This is the kind of love which young men, women, in which young women need to be encouraged. And if you're not married, I want to challenge you as well. Are you cultivating this kind of Christ-like self-giving love toward the people that God has put in your household, your brothers and sisters, your parents, your roommates. Of course, it's going to look different outside of a marriage relationship, but the foundational principles of selflessness and grace being motivated by God's love are the same. This kind of love for others shows the lost world that we belong to Christ. All right, that brings us to encouraging the young women to be children lovers. And although the most obvious application is to mothers, we all have many opportunities to love and cherish children. There are children around all of us whom we can love, especially here at Grace Bible Church. And it's so encouraging to see the many ways in which you ladies are children lovers, both of your own children and of others. As with loving our husbands, being a lover of children means modeling our love for children after God's love for his people through Jesus Christ. We are to cherish and enjoy children and to be intentional about loving them in a way which points them to Christ. And again, this is a love that is selfless and affectionate. You know, it's interesting that though there is so much that can and needs to be said about um training children and parenting children. Here, Paul focuses on our heart attitude. By all means, parents need to diligently search the scriptures to understand the responsibilities that God has entrusted to them as parents. 
But what Paul highlights here is the attitude which must undergird everything we do with children, whether we're parents or not. And it's an attitude of self-giving love. This is an attitude that must be constantly fed with truth from God's word because children, our own children in particular, will expose our sin, our self-love, our love of comfort and ease. And if we head into our day cherishing what we love, the way we want the day to go, we will not have an attitude of self-giving love, particularly when our children are the ones who are tipping over our idols of the things that we want and how we think life should go. But we will be ready to pour out that self-giving love to our children when we're shepherding our heart with the truth that we're not our own, that our time is not our own, that we belong to the Lord. And every opportunity that he gives us to engage with children is an opportunity to serve him. And at times it is overwhelming And it's really hard to figure out what to do when competing demands just feel like they are crashing down all at the same time. But he has not left us alone. Being overwhelmed or weary or sick or tired, it never means we have to sin. We cannot love this way on our best day left to ourselves. And so a hard day can even be a gift because we are only so much more aware of how badly we need to be drinking deeply of God's love for us if we're going to be pouring out self-giving love for our children. This is the kind of love and dependence on the Lord that young women need to be taught and shown. And one way we can all love children is to support this hard work that parents are doing by encouraging little, our little friends, our grandkids, to honor and obey their parents. So as we persevere in loving children in a biblical way, we're strengthening our homes and our church. Well, number three then is sensible. To be sensible deals primarily with the mind or thought life. It means that we're not to run for the edges or extremes in our thought life, but instead strive for balanced thinking, reserved thinking, that's not easily moved off center. Being sensible means that we will each give, that we will give each situation its proper weight, not too much, not too little. And whether or not we're being sensible is to a large degree determined by our focus, by what we allow to have the weight in how we think about things. You know how cameras have lenses that can make objects at a certain distance blur? Um, Well, being sensible is not letting our circumstances blur what is eternally true, what we know to be true about God's word and his character and his promises about his gospel. Being sensible means keeping these weighty, unchanging truths from God's word in sharp focus so that they have the weight in our thinking. And consequently, then, in our actions as well. We don't let the situation undermine our confidence and hope in the Lord. (laughs) Keeping eternal truth as the standard for our thinking and our actions guards our peace and our trust in the Lord. And it guards us from letting our circumstances lead us down a path of anxiety, fear, worry, and all kinds of other sin and insensible responses. Being sensible protects God's word from dishonor because it shows how trustworthy God's word is. That brings us then to number four, which is pure. Pure means chaste, morally pure in all ways. That's one of my little friends that I love just waving at me. Sorry. That was a very happy little distraction. Okay. So throughout the book of Titus, there is a contrast between purity and impurity. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. So do you see the contrast there? There's pure and there's defiled. Defiled means sullied, spoiled, corrupted. 
Titus 3 verse 3 says that unbelievers are enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. That's what impurity does to us. It seeks to enslave us. So when we talk about being pure, our focus should not be simply on the things that we can't do. I think sometimes we make that mistake. No, rather, when we say pure, we're talking about protection from that which corrupts and will only seek to enslave us. Because before we were saved, we were defiled. There was nothing pure about us. But Titus 2.14 tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession. See, we belong to Jesus. He purified us for himself. And we get to show that in our purity, loving what is pure, embracing what is pure, pursuing what is pure in every area of our lives, and hating that which is impure, that the things that corrupt and defile, fleeing from all that is impure. Jesus' sacrifice of himself is put on display when, we're, when our lives show that he has purified us. And purity is God's standard for every area of our lives, our thoughts, motives, words, desires, dreams, actions, clothing, relationships, entertainment. Scott Maxwell once said, if we never let into our hearts one impure scene from outside of us, like from a movie or a website or a book, we would still have enough impurity in our own hearts to deal with for a lifetime. So don't heat more impurity upon your mind with what you let in, what you look at, what you watch. We need to flee from impurity to take hold of that which is pure and good because we belong to Jesus. He gave himself to purify us for himself. And as it says in the notes, God purifies the sinner inwardly through the cross of Christ so that in becoming pure, believers can then pursue clean, pure living. Purity guards our homes and our church, and it shows that what Christ has done in his people is so much superior to that which is corrupt and defiled. So next we have then on page four, workers at home. <coughs> now for most of us, our experience with work is primarily with school or with a job where there's somebody else telling us what to do and holding us accountable, we receive grades or a paycheck, we know someone else will be evaluating our work. But being a worker at home is different. Now, if you live with your parents or with roommates, you may have other people telling you what work to do in your home and letting you know even when you haven't done it. But what's being instructed here is literally to be a home-working woman. It's describing someone who has a heart for her household who understands the value and the priority of the work and the relationships and the opportunities in her home. She is not waiting for someone else to tell her what's expected or to hold her accountable because she knows the Lord ultimately is her audience. He is her master. He sees what's done in secret, and that sobers her away from idleness and selfishness and that encourages her when she's weary and the work is difficult. And a woman gains this view of the work in her home by understanding what God says about the value of work in his word. And so we're going to look together at these New Testament verses in your notes and their application to our role as workers in our homes. Both the verses and the applications are in the worksheet so that that will make it easier to follow along as we move through these rather quickly. But as we go, be sure to mark those that stand out to you, those which are going to help you have a more biblical view of the work God has for you in your home. So Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father 
who is in heaven. So how can we apply that? Well, our work in our homes should display the light of Christ in our lives in such a way that God is glorified. It's not to make us look good. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so knowing from Titus 2 that the work of the Lord for us as women includes the work of our homes, we are to always abound in that work and to be encouraged that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. See, he knows, even if nobody else does, he knows our weariness, he knows our toil, and he encourages us by reminding us that we're doing his work and it's not in vain. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul was writing to the believers about the gracious work of generous giving. And when he gets to chapter 9, verse 8, he expands to talking about every good deed. And he writes, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, including the good deeds he has for us as workers in our homes. Isn't that helpful? Doesn't that help us know how to pray when it seems we can never find enough time or energy or maybe even motivation for the work in our homes? See, God is able to make all grace abound to us for every good deed in our homes. This should make us prayerfully dependent on the Lord. Ephesians 2.10 then says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, including the work in our homes, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God prepared the works in our home for us so that we would walk in them, so that our lives would show that he is our master and he wisely chooses the work he has for each of us. In Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Paul instructed slaves... Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. So here slaves who might have had very little choice about the kind of work they did or whom they served are encouraged that Jesus is really the one they're serving. Likewise, our work in the home is an act of service to the Lord. And so we also should do it heartily, from the heart, without complaining. It's an opportunity for worshipful service. Now in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul said he wanted women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Good works including the good works that God has for us in our homes. These good works are the proper adorning for godly women. They show something about who we are, about what God has done in us through his gospel. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul was describing widows eligible to be on a list of widows with a specially recognized church ministry in Ephesus. And he wrote a widow's to be put on the list only if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she's shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. See, godly widows have a reputation for good works. And notice how many of these good works happen in the home. Bringing up children, extending hospitality, serving, assisting others, being devoted to every good work doesn't keep us from being workers in our home. It makes the work in our homes fruitful for God's kingdom. See, God's design for all women is that we be workers at home for all of our lives. It does not change when our kids are in school or when they move out of the house. Older women must be an example to the younger women of how to keep a priority on being a worker at home, regardless of whether or not we are employed outside of our homes as well. This is non-negotiable, just like being sensible or pure. 
God is the one who prepared these works for us in our homes. He's the one we're serving. He is the one to be glorified. He's the one who supplies abundant grace for the work in our homes. And it's not in vain. When we are workers at home, God's work of salvation in us is put on display, and we protect God's word from dishonor. This kind of diligent worker is a useful servant in the Lord's hand for, um, to benefit his whole church. So this work is important. It matters. It's non-negotiable, and there are no exceptions. So that's all about the value of the work. But now let's turn to page five, and we're going to take a few minutes to talk about the nature of the work, what the work of the home includes. Now, while I would love to read Proverbs 31 together, I'm going to add that onto your homework for you to do on your own. Because I want you to see for yourself from the scripture where these principles come from. But for now, we're going to just read through this list of principles from the Proverbs 31 woman, which help us understand the work of the home. So the Proverbs 31 woman is trustworthy in her home and to the people there. The Proverbs 31 woman does good and not does her husband good and not evil all her days. She works with her hands in delight that speaks about her attitude. She makes sure that those in her household have food and clothing. She's a wise steward of finances for the benefit of her household. There's such an important opportunity we have to serve our households in that way. She prepares for needs to come. She cares for the poor. She's productive with her time and her abilities. She is diligent. She has dignity. She looks well to the ways of her household. She speaks wisdom. She teaches kindness. She is not idle. And all of this is because she is a woman who fears the Lord. She has a reverence for the Lord that makes her want to draw near and obey him. The Proverbs 31 shows us, the Proverbs 31 woman shows us that being a worker at home is not merely to be at home, but to be a worker there, to be employed with the relationships as well as the tasks of a household. Any worker activities that take a woman outside of her home must be weighed in light of the impact they have on her ability to be a worker at home, whether that's employment, ministry, hobbies, even kids' activities. All of our circumstances are different. You know, some women battle chronic illness, which means that though their desire is to be a worker in their home, they may find that at times their primary work um, in their home is to pray and to bless those who help with the work in their home by shepherding their hearts so that they're overflowing with love for Christ. That blesses those who come alongside them to serve and help them in those seasons. And I've had that experience with suffering women at this church, and it's a huge blessing. In other seasons, the work of the home is so demanding that there's very little time and energy left over for anything else, even very good things. In other seasons, the demands are lighter, and that frees us to be more available to the Lord for ministering to others in our home and even beyond our homes. There are also seasons where it's appropriate for a woman to not only be a worker at home, but also to be in the workplace, employed in some way. But the challenge we have from God's word here is to be sure that we're giving the work of our home the same value which God gives it. And if you're married, you need to be talking regularly with your husband to have wisdom and unity about these kinds of decisions, making sure, again, that you're placing value where God places it. Being a child of God is a blessed calling, and being a worker at home is one of the ways God has for us to put that on display. And we can believe him when he tells us that it's important in every season of life because it protects his word from dishonor when we do our work as serving him. And if this is an area of struggle for you, find a godly older woman and ask her to help you grow. That is God's design for us to help one another put the work of his grace in our lives on display. All right, that brings us then to kind. All right, I promise this will be much shorter, but just as important. (laughs) 
This word kind is often translated good in the New Testament. It's a kindness or goodness that comes from the heart, and then it overflows into words and actions that benefit others. It's interesting how kindness follows right on the heels of workers at home. Often our heart attitude is most clearly revealed right in our homes with those relationships. And sadly, very often our household is where we can be most careless with kindness. In our actions, attitudes, words, our tone, our facial expressions, body language, we can be tempted to leave kindness behind because we feel rushed or unappreciated. But since genuine kindness is something God produces in our lives through his Holy Spirit that lives in us, we can't base it on what others do or what they don't do. It must not depend on whether we are rested or whether we have a really long to-do list. Kindness is not a reaction to those around us or to our circumstances, but rather it is to be a reflection of our Heavenly Father. And grace instructs us to be kind. That then brings us to page six in our worksheet. Being subject to their own husbands. So what do you think about submission? Before Christ, all we wanted was self-rule. Remember the blue chart, the left side of that? But now, as those who are new creations in Christ, we can still find that residue of sin, of wanting to grasp for self-rule. Even though God is the one who places us under authority at many different levels, and he always does so for our good. So we need to let our minds be transformed by the truth of God's word and encourage younger women to think biblically about submission as well. Understanding submission is relevant, again, in every season of life. When we're single, a biblical understanding of submission prepares us to encourage our married friends, and it prepares us for marriage if that's in our future. And in every season of life, there are authorities to whom we must submit. In our family, our job, our church, our workplace, our government, school. And the heart struggles that we have with that authority very often boil down to whether or not we trust God to sovereignly lead us through fallen, sinful people. So understanding submission here will help us submit in other other settings as well. Now being subject means to be submissive and obedient. It is lining ourselves up under the leadership and authority of our husband. It is to voluntarily place ourselves under our husband, not waiting for him to require it. And it's not something we do only when we're being watched. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. See, marriage has this high and holy purpose of displaying Christ and his relationship with the church. Wives get to put that on display by submitting to their husband joyfully and wholeheartedly. But if it's such a good thing, why is it so hard? Well, we could certainly point to a lot of things, but ultimately the biggest struggle to submit comes from our own sinful heart. We love to rule ourselves. We love to trust in ourselves. We love to think that we are right. So we need to realize that our battle with submission is not a battle against our husband or against someone else in authority. It's a battle with our own sin. That is our biggest adversary. We need to remember that the Lord is trustworthy. He's the one we're trusting and honoring when we submit, whether or not we feel like our husband deserves it. Submission is to be done willingly without being contentious, without exhibiting a wearisome tendency to quarrels and disputes. Proverbs 19.13 says the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. It's just an ongoing irritation. We need to be intentional about agreeing with our husband as often as we can rather than being contentious. 
just because he's not doing something the way we do it doesn't make him wrong. For example, it isn't helpful to your husband to jump in and correct his parenting midstream. Now, it doesn't mean that we never speak up or share our opinion, particularly about major decisions and issues. We do need to speak up in appropriate, helpful, humble, respectful ways. We do need to seek for biblical unity with our husband, especially in parenting. That's important. But we need to wait for the right time to approach him and make sure our own heart is ready to approach him with the goal of understanding what he's thinking and of building unity, not just trying to persuade him to agree with us. And we need to be careful. We shouldn't think that every decision our husband makes needs to be discussed with us. God created Eve to be a suitable helper to Adam. And so that can help us evaluate, am I actually being helpful or am I being wearisome, contentious? What would your husband say? What do your children see? It's also important to understand that submission does not mean that we follow our husband into sin. And if we see a sinful pattern in our husband, we can make a gracious appeal. That's part of being a helper to our husband as well. We need to ask our husband if together we can obtain counsel from an elder or a godly couple. Being a suitable helper in the truest sense of the word may mean humbly requesting assistance when we're concerned about the consequence to our family of our husband's choices. But always, always, this must be done after much prayer, examining ourselves through the log in our own eye before we try to help our husband with the speck in his, and with the utmost respect humility, love, gentleness, patience. So let's finish this virtue with looking at 1 Peter 3. You have some verses in your notes again. Verse 1 begins in the same way, and he's pointing back to Christ at the cross in chapter 2. You wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word, by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So what's the instruction? Even for this kind of a husband who is disobedient to the word, be submissive. Let them see your pure, respectful behavior. Verse 3 says your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Verse 4, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. See, submission begins in the heart by cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit. And again, that's why discipline one is so foundational. There's no way to cultivate genuine biblical submission without faithfully submitting ourselves to God and his word. There's protection when a woman comes under the headship of her husband. And we can't assume that all women understand this principle of submission. It is so contrary to the world's messages. We all need to be encouraged that submission strengthens our families, our church. It honors Grace's instructions to us in Titus 2. And it protects the reputation of God's word. It matters. It is about our heart and our willingness to trust God and submit to him by submitting to our husband. So that brings us then to Roman numeral three. What happens when transformed women are all they should be? This really brings us back to where we began with the Wellspring Purpose. We've seen that Paul is concerned for the church and that the way in which we must be part of strengthening the church is to live in such a way that the word of God is not dishonored. And that is a privilege. God took us from being lost, rebellious God-haters, and he purchased us with the precious blood of Jesus to give us himself. We get God through Jesus' death in our place. And then, by his grace, he places us in his body, the church, and makes us part of strengthening his body by protecting the honor of his word through our relationships and our godliness. Okay, let's pray, and then I have a few comments about the homework for you. Heavenly Father, 
thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living, that it is active, that it is powerful. Thank you that it never changes. Thank you that it has no errors, that we can trust everything we've seen in your word today. Oh, Father, how I pray. What Even now my own heart feels overwhelmed with the magnitude of what you've put here in just these three short verses. Oh, Father, let your Holy Spirit take what we've heard, distill it down, make it clear how you would have us take what we've heard today and take one piece and put that into practice so that we might grow step by step in being more like Christ, being more and more useful in your hands to be your instruments in one another's lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, go ahead and pull out the blue homework page. Okay, two things I want you to jot down on here. Um, The first is somewhere on here next to looking back, make a note to yourself to go back and read Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, and look at it with the sheet from your notes that had those principles so that you can see for yourself how those principles come from God's word. And then the second thing is at the end of the looking back question here, after it says, how will you use discipline one to cultivate that quality? I want you to add the instructions, be specific. It really is so much more helpful in our application, in our growth, to answer in such a way that it's really clear whether you've actually done it or not. Don't kind of let yourself stay up here and nebulous and kind of say some nice things, but you don't really know whether it ever actually happens or not. That's just speaking from experience. I'm lazy and I like to do that, but it's so much more helpful to make it specific. All right, have a wonderful time in your discussion groups. It was wonderful to be with you.